Thanks, man. So this guy dies, and he gets to the pearly gates, and God comes out to meet him, and the guy says to God, I really want to know what heaven and hell are like. And God said, all right, come on, I'll show you. Let's start with hell. And he takes him into this enormous room. It's just a huge room. And in the middle of the room is a huge pot of stew. And everyone around the pot uh, is starving and miserable and suffering. They all have spoons that are long enough to reach the pot, but the problem is the spoon's handles are so long they can't feed themselves. And their suffering is unbelievable. Food but not able to eat. God says, all right, come on, I'll show you heaven. And they walk into another room, which is identical. Large room, big pot of stew, people all around it, same exact spoons, but everyone's well-fed and happy. And the man's very confused, and he says to God, he says, God, I, I don't understand. Why, why are the people in hell so starving and miserable, but everyone's here happy and well-fed? It's the same room. And God said, well, that's easy. The people in heaven have learned to feed each other. I love that story. I love it. And stories, pearly gate stories, pearly gate jokes, we have a ton of them, don't we? And the rest of the world has a ton of them. And in fact, even in antiquity, at Jesus' time, they had a ton of them. Now, no one told these pearly gate stories to describe their literal beliefs of eschatology. They told him to comment on life and on politics and, and faith, etc. Kenneth Bailey suggests that this parable is one of these pearly gate stories. He says this about it. He says, Indeed, it bears many of the traditional marks of the stories. And if the parable is a first century pearly gate story, its primary purpose is not to present fine points of Jesus' view of life after death. After much study, I have to say, I think Bailey's correct. I think that this parable has tremendous truth in it, but maybe not literal eschatological truth. Like the story I just told, I think there's amazing truth in that. But I don't believe heaven and hell are big rooms with pots of soup in the middle of and I think understanding this idea can help us better understand this parable. This, this is one of the most difficult parables Jesus told. And most of us don't like it. Or at least many of us avoid it. Often because of the confusion that surrounds it. The confusion that is from people that want to use it to scare us to death with the literal description of heaven and hell. As though really, we're, we're, what are we going to picnic on the edge of the chasm so we can look at the people in hell? Whatever. Anyway. I think if we can look at this from a new perspective and wrap our heads around it, I think we could actually really learn to like this parable. But, warning, it's still difficult. It's actually terrifying because it pushes us into an authenticity of faith that is very difficult. See, the center of this parable is the exact same major theme that we are often exploring here at Cana, which is the gospel of a crucified God. A God that says, follow me. Follow him into this reality that when we're last, we're first. When we're lost, we're found. When we're dead, we are finally alive. 
and to live out that reality for others. Be last for them. Be lost for them. Be dead for them. You know, isn't that sort of what we've been slowly learning as we've made our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthians? This exact theme that Paul's always talking about. He says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Let no one seek his own good but that of his name. We just spent three weeks looking at how the rich people in Corinth completely neglected the poor neighbor that they had, even at the communion table. And Paul's discussed with them. And Rich last week, I felt, did an exceptional job of showing us that Paul's always teaching us. We were in Philippians, and Rich had us look at the, the hymn to humility, or the Christ hymn, and discovered that this is the identity of God, and if we understand it, this is our identity too. And Rich gave us some amazing quotes I'm going to share again this morning. They're just so powerful and I, I think are exactly what this parable is about. What greater mercy is there than this, which imposed the form of a servant on the master of the word, such that bread itself was hungry, fullness itself was thirsty, power itself made weak, health itself was wounded, and life itself was mortal. What greater mercy than that which presents to us the creator created, the master made a slave, the redeemer sold, the one who exalts humbled, the one who raised the dead killed. Fee, for in pouring himself out and humbling himself to death on a cross, Christ Jesus has revealed the character of God himself. For God is not an acquisitive being, grasping and seizing, but self-giving for the sake of others. I really love that quote, because acquisitive is, is not inquisitive, acquisitive is, is such a description of most of us, I think. Hooker, it is precisely on the cross and in the Son's self-emptying and humiliation on the cross that we learn what is the actual character of our God. In Witherington, no surprise that the cross and the sacrificial lamb are seen elsewhere in the New Testament as the highest revelations of the character of God. And I think in this parable, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to teach. So let's start to look at it today. Let's get... Let's get to know a little bit the two main characters, and then ne next week or the week after we'll finish it up, we'll meet the third character next week. But let's at least start with the first two <coughs> characters. Jesus begins his parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. One of the amazing things about Jesus' teaching methods is he could say so much in so few words. This is something my wife wants me to learn from Jesus, actually, so I can do five-minute <laughs> sermons instead of long sermons like I do. But I'm getting there. Baby steps. <laughs> No, in one verse, he reveals an amazing amount about this guy. An amazing amount. These are necessary details that actually help us get a sense of where Jesus is going with this parable. The verb tense in the original suggests that the man dressed like this every day. Every day he wore purple and fine linen. So purple, in those days, this identified the very wealthy. Because only the richest people could afford to dress in purple. It was... It was, I, it was their status symbol. And this guy did it every day. He must have had other things to wear, but he wanted everyone to know he was rich. He loved that. He was into his wealth, and he wanted everyone to know it. I, you guys know me. I'm sort of not into fashion, so I don't even know what today's would be. Maybe Armani suits, but I don't even know if people care about fashion anymore. So may, maybe like limousines and private jets. That's what this guy. He was all about himself and his money, and he wanted everyone to know, look at me. I'm important. 
my apartment smells like rich mahogany. That's who this guy is. I probably shouldn't have made that, it, delete that from that. I don't want, wow, gosh, quoted Ron Burton. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble for that. Okay, so, but then Jesus, actually Jesus does it right here, so it's okay. Because he turns around and uses his incredible sarcasm that he often uses when he's telling stories. And he says, and the guy dressed in fine linen. So why I believe this is Jesus being incredibly sarcastic and helping us learn more about this guy is that this comes from the Greek B-U-S-S-O-S, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew B-U-T-Z. And many scholars suggest that this is high-quality Egyptian cotton used for underwear. This guy was a hedonist par excellence. But here's the thing. That alone wasn't the problem. And we have to be careful. See, whenever we engage the rich-poor question, we always tend to want to oversimplify it and go to these extremes where all of a sudden money is evil and lack of money is not or vice versa. You can't, let's not do that to the rich-poor question. Money's money. It's what we do with riches or do with poverty that then starts to ask the moral question the ethical questions, the question Jesus is asking, Paul is asking, etc. See, the problem was this guy's love of pleasure in his money and his importance and his wealth prevented him from thinking there was any other way to do life. Notice Jesus says he, he feasted sumptuously every day. In order to do this, this is a total disregard for others, both the divine other and the human other. Because, see, if he feasted sumptuously every day, that means he wasn't observing the Sabbath. And that was very important in Jesus' audience to hear that. And by extension, he wasn't letting his servants observe the Sabbath because they would have had to work all day to be sure he could feast sumptuously. This guy was completely all about himself. He didn't care about anybody else. He was sort of living the reverse of Paul's teaching, wasn't he? Paul said, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. This guy only sought his own good. He didn't care one iota for his neighbor. Ever. Ever. There's this great thought by a guy named Ben Pasley. I think he captures this well. He says, many have settled for a lifetime of worshiping inferior temporary things. Their lives reflect their pursuits. This guy's life reflected that. His God was money. And next week we're going to see much more about this guy's character. He's a beaut. He's an absolute beaut. Uh, and we'll see more of that next week. It, his life really did reflect his pursuit. So in contrast, we have Lazarus. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Bible trivia time. So put your thinking hats on. The fact that this man has a name is a big deal. Why? Not what his name is. That's the second trivia question. Just the fact that he has a name. Why is that a big deal? It should make us sit up and take notice. Come on, Bible readers. Not you, Rich. You've written books on it. Stop. <laughs> Somebody else. Why is that a big deal? Guess. Guess. Uh, my my guess is that he was somebody at one at one point. That's a good guess. Mm -hmm. Thanks. 
And there are some scholars who do think this might be that Lazarus, but... No, not that. I'm just saying. You yeah, anyway. Okay. Good call. Um, property, maybe fell sick. Gotcha. Okay. Good call, man? but I don't agree. Was he born a free man? Uh, nope. I think it's... I think it's it, you guys are going great places, but I think it's... I think you know it's, within the religious community? Something less. No. Nope. Like known to be righteous? No. Nope. Great point, too, but something, something much more simple. There's power in the name. Yes, but... Yep, and there is, and we're going to get to that. Why is he Lazarus, but... Uh, Jesus has a friend named Lazarus, and he decided to give him that name. Good, good, good answer. Good answer. No. Okay. In all of the fictional story parables that Jesus tells, this is the only time he gives names to the characters. That has got to be significant. It's got to make us stand up and go, whoa, what is Jesus talking about here? So, trivia number two, I think it's important he picked Lazarus because what does Lazarus mean? Anybody? Bueller? <laughs> I just went over this a few weeks ago when we did the gender. The one whom God helps. Wow, awesome. Remember? Remember Genesis 2? It was so powerful on the women. They were named Azir. The one who helps. God in the Old Testament, Elazar. The one who helps, which became Lazarus in the Greek. The one whom God helps. That's what Lazarus means. But here's the thing. You read it and you're thinking, wow, Jesus is telling some bitter joke. Because from a human perspective, in all external purposes... This guy didn't get any help from God, did he? Hmm. But maybe that's what some of what Jesus is maybe trying to help us understand here. And as the parable goes on, I think this will become important why he called him Lazarus. So let's continue. So it says, Lazarus was laid at his gate. Obviously he was brought here by friends and family who couldn't help him themselves enough, so they brought him to the one guy in town they thought could help him. I saw this a lot when I lived in India. The lepers, uh, about once every seven to ten days, would come through our neighborhood, and uh, it would be the healthy, able-bodied lepers that would put the less healthy, non-able-bodied lepers on these, on these homemade carts, and they'd, they'd pull them behind them, and it was a huge walk into town, because the leper colony was whoo, way out there, but they'd spend, spend the whole day walking into town, they'd come to the gates, they'd bang their metal cups on our gates and hope that we would go out and give them alms or feed them or, or what have you. So I saw this a lot. And here, Lazarus was laid at the gate, and so picture the estate, and where this feasting went on was, would be out in the open courtyard. You know, from other stories, Jesus tells, like the lady that comes and washes his feet, she's able to do that because that's what would happen, literally. The, the, the village folks would come whenever there was something going on at the rich guy's house, and they'd sit around. So they would lay him at the gate, and within earshot and vision of all the sumptuous feasting, Jesus says he desired to be fed. Desired to be fed. And in Luke's gospel, this suggests a desire that is never satisfied. Jesus used it, or, or Luke wrote it, with the story of the prodigal son as well. He longed to fill his stomach with the pause that the pig's reading, but no one gave him anything. Lazarus, Lazarus didn't get fed because... Even the leftovers, which could have been used for Lazarus, were given to the guard dogs. See, 
crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table are understood to the is a, is a phrase that's understood in the Middle East to reference the estate guards' dogs being fed the leftovers from the feast. It's already been established this guy was filthy rich, so there's no doubt he had a bunch of guard dogs, and of course he fed them. Why? Because they protected him. It was all about him. But he wouldn't feed another human being. Interesting. And next we have a very interesting detail in the story that can really help us understand where Jesus is going with it. Sorry, there it is. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Here's the problem. English translations have let us down. Here's, here's how that's one, and, and here's what a lot of English translations sound like. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. <coughs> and that makes it sound like the dogs were just one more part of his problem, doesn't it? The way that it's, it's read. It's as though, all right, Lazarus not, I mean, the rich guy not helping him at all in, in, in all his suffering. This is just one more piece of suffering. Oh, my gosh. Even the dogs are abusing him. However, the Greek word here is A-L-L-A, and most Greek scholars tell us that it indicates a contrast, a contrast. <coughs> Wycliffe nails this. And coveted to be fulfilled of the crumbs that fell down from the rich man's board, and no man gave to him, but hounds came and licked his board. This is huge, because this is so beautiful and such an important part of this story. So Bailey sheds insight for us, because... He cites medical studies that have identified healing agents in dog saliva, which those of us who have dogs, you know, they just lick and lick and lick. It's because they know that eventually, hopefully, they're going to heal these things. So, in fact, the dogs were not being consistent in adding injury to insult, so to speak. Instead, they were actually helping the guy. Bailey gives us insight. The rich man will do nothing for Lazarus, but these wild guard dogs who attack all strangers know that Lazarus is their friend and do what they can. They lick his sores. Now, to really get to what this is saying about Lazarus, we need to understand something. Dogs in the Middle East at this time were not pets, cute, cuddly pets. In fact, that's something that's very modern Western. There's still a lot of countries that would just laugh at the way we treat our dogs. They're not pets. They're not cuddly, little, beautiful, cute creatures. They're either street scavengers or guard dogs. One or the other. Even scripture, go through scripture. They don't, scripture doesn't know anything nice about dogs. Um, Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They're all mute dogs. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil. Outside the dogs, those who practice all these things. These are vicious guard dogs, but here they come to help Lazarus. Think about that detail. Ibn al-Taib, he's an ancient Christian New Testament scholar from the 11th century. He sheds a lot of light on this. I understand that the licking of his sores gave him relief and eased his pain. This reminds us that the silent, unspeaking animals felt compassion for him, and they helped him and cared for him more than the humans. He was without medical attention other than what he received from the dogs. This demonstrates that the rich man did not notice him or give him any attention at all. 
Thus, when we compare the rich man's condition to that of Lazarus, we see that the first was clothed with purple and linen, the second was naked and covered with sores. The first luxuriated every day with a banquet, while the second longed for scraps of bread. The first had many servants ready to satisfy all of his needs, and the other had no servants other than the dog. And Bailey writes, This beautiful scene depicts a great deal about the person of Lazarus. He was kind, gentle, and lived in quiet harmony with the animal world around him, regardless of the harshness of his environment. In this parable, Jesus paints a clear picture of Lazarus' gentle soul. He was a man at peace with himself, within his suffering, and managed to live in harmony even with the wild dogs around him. What an incredible contrast in humanity, isn't it? These two main characters of this story. Knowing what we know about the rich man and the way he responded to the ease of his life, how do you think he would have responded to suffering? If good things caused him to be self-indulgent and filled with at best indifference or at worst contempt for those in need, I think it's fair to say that if, if suffering was visited upon him, it probably would have caused him to become bitter, angry, resentful. His response to the many blessings in his life indicate a man convinced he can save himself. Convinced that winning, that success, that power can bring all the redemption he needs. In fact, in his mind, it has already brought him all the redemption he needs. And we're going to see that out of him next week when we get further into the story. Look at me, I'm a winner. Obviously blessed by God. And this loser at his gate, in his mind, must be cursed by God. I wonder if this is the exact attitude Paul was dealing with in Corinth. At the table. Lazarus was so different. His response to his suffering was peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. And next week we're going to see how that all defines Lazarus. Could you imagine being someone who people have to bring you and lay you in the street begging for money? But your character being peace, gentleness, self-control? Do those things sound familiar? St. Paul calls them the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Lazarus. In fact, what's a really cool exercise, I suggest doing it this week. This may be a commentary on this parable. Galatians chapter 5. Read it this week as a commentary to this parable. I know Paul wrote his stuff before the, the gospel writers wrote theirs, but I'm pretty sure those stories were probably circulating. Paul knew them well. I think he wrote this to comment on this parable. Anyway, do that this week. It's an interesting exercise. In the meantime... What is our response to the circumstances of our life? Is it like the rich guys, or is it like Lazarus's? Do we help ourselves, or are we the one whom God helps? This world brings many <coughs> blessings, many, many blessings. This world brings many sufferings, many. I think following Christ means we will respond like 
unto Lazarus, not like unto the rich guy. I think it means we would finally understand and finally trust what Christ was always talking about. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will preserve it. <coughs> you know what has struck me recently about this? It's always brought up sort of thinking, maybe being taught, maybe just hearing it wrong, I don't know. But that this, Jesus is sort of talking about some evangelistic martyrdom, losing my life for his sake. You know, standing on the street corner and getting killed because you're sticking up for Jesus, or something like that. Let's not do that to this. Let's bring it down to our lives. Lose ourselves for others. Remember Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me? Lose ourselves for my sake, Jesus says. In other words, be last for others. Be lost for others. Be dead for others. Because when we're last, we are first. When we're lost, we are found. And when we're dead, we are finally alive. Might God help us all live this way?